Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew 28. We are in the middle of a discussion of the resurrection events surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. We've done the first seven verses in Matthew 28, and I tried to give you an overview of the events that happened during the resurrection week. I am not going to go over all those events because Matthew doesn't talk about them all. Matthew leaves out the separate trip of Mary Magdalene to tell the apostles. Peter and John left the apostles, went back to the tomb. Matthew doesn't mention Jesus is visiting the disciples on Resurrection Sunday night plus the next Sunday night. All of that's left out. We'll talk about that when we get to John where we have a lot more details. So right now we're just going to kind of collapse it and go along with the way Matthew does it. In verse 8 he says, So departing quickly from the tomb, that's talking about the group of women minus Mary Magdalene who had left earlier to go see the, the apostles, to tell the apostles, so departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell the disciple the news. What news? That they had seen angels, that the tomb was empty, and the angels had said, He has been raised from the dead. In fact, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. And as I said in the last audio, when they tell the disciples that to go ahead to Galilee, that will trigger their memory because Jesus, in Matthew 26, I believe it was, had said, Meet me in Galilee. Now, it's interesting, as the women left from the tomb, they had fear as well as great joy. It's interesting to me that fear could be mingled with great joy. The joy is not mentioned in Mark, but it's mentioned here. Well, now, where, why is joy mentioned? Or, excuse me, why is fear mentioned? Well, because they still did not completely believe what they had seen. Somebody may have taken the body, but as John Gill says, but I have a trouble with that because then they would have to deny the words of angels who said, no, nah, the body wasn't, well, the angel said, the angel said he's risen again. It's hard to go from that to the body's been stolen. Now, Mary Magdalene thought the body was stolen, probably because she left earlier before the other group of women saw the angels. Because she ran to Simon Peter and the other disciples in John 20, verse 2, and she said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Sounds like they were robbed. Jesus was robbed by grave robbers. We don't know where they have put him. So, I don't think Mary Magdalene actually saw the angels, although Gleason Archer says she did see the angels and she was so emotionally discombobulated that she still didn't believe them and she still thought it was grave robbers. I, I don't think so. I don't think she ever saw the angels. And so I think John Gill is wrong, too, that they had fear because they thought somebody had taken the body. I believe that the reason they departed quickly from the tomb with fear is because it's only natural that when you meet supernatural things, you start trembling, you start fearing. Mark 16:8 says, So they went out and started running from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. I mean, you know, you see an angel. That tends to be what you think. Oh, my gosh, an angel. I'm out of here. It's not an ordinary event. People think that miracles happen all the time in the New Testament. Well, they happened a lot. They happen more than they do now. But nonetheless, they were still rare because that's the definition of a miracle. And when people saw miracles and when they saw angels, it was a rare event and it scared them. No problem there. Matthew 28, verse 9, just then Jesus met them and said, good morning. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Now, I just love this. Jesus is already resurrected. He's walking around. The women are running and trembling in fear, heading to the disciples. And who do they meet instead of the disciples but Jesus himself? And what does he say? Good morning. Like, how do you do? Well, I just think it's just incredible to me that uh, Jesus greets them just like it was any other day. What's the big deal? I rose again from the dead. They they thought it was a big deal, though. They came up and grabbed him by his feet and worshipped him. I think that's a normal reaction. John Gill says they grabbed him by his feet probably to assure themselves he was not a ghost. 
I don't think so. I think they were just grabbing him to worship him. I think it's a reasonable thing to do, grab somebody by the feet and say, because after all, you know, they knew that Jesus was more than just a man. They knew he was God. Now, this meeting of Jesus confirmed what the angels had said. The angels said he's risen. Now, they were eyewitnesses themselves to Jesus' resurrection. When they told the apostles now, it wouldn't just be telling the apostles what the angels said. They could now give firsthand evidence that they had seen Jesus. Their testimony to the disciples would be even stronger. Now, I know Adam Clark has an interesting point here. He says that Jesus does not reveal himself to incredulous and disobedient souls. These women had their faith tried. They had to believe what the angels said, and they were running to tell the disciples what the angels had said, so they must have believed the angels. So God honored their faith and their trust, and they followed and their their perseverance in following Jesus to the tomb in the midst of all their grief, and Jesus tops it all off with, Good morning. I'm risen from the dead. Matthew 28, verse 10, Then Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Why did he tell them, Don't be afraid? You would think seeing Jesus would have the opposite effect. Well, remember, when you see something supernatural, that makes you afraid. It makes you excited. It's something that you're not aware of. Remember, we just said they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. When they saw the angels, when they see who they thought had just been crucified, he's walking around perfectly okay. Well, that would tend to arouse a little bit of at least wonder in you. And wonder is strictly uh, closely allied with fear. Jesus tries to calm them down. He says, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee. My brothers. He called his apostles his brothers. Remember, he did that earlier in his Galilean ministry when his mother and brothers came up to him. And the people there said, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside the crowd. They're trying to see you. And Jesus stretched out his hand toward his disciples. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. There he calls his disciples his brothers. And here his apostles are called brothers. And that's why Christians call themselves brothers. This must have been reassuring to the women. They might have thought that Jesus would be upset that all his disciples abandoned him. But no, Jesus is not angry with them. He says, my brothers, let's go meet at Galilee. Now, of course, telling them that, would be a trigger because in Matthew 26, I believe it was, Jesus had already told Jesus, the disciples to meet him after the resurrection in Galilee. So they would have that bouncing around in their memory, though they might not have really believed he would be resurrected from the dead. But now that he was, and all of a sudden they're going to get a report from the women that Jesus has risen, go meet me in Galilee, that would be a trigger to say, that's what he told us. And now the women are telling us this. Maybe they're not as silly as we thought they were. Maybe it's true. Now, we need to point out that the brothers did meet Jesus in Galilee, and they did see him there, just as Jesus told the women to tell the disciples. But they also met Jesus before they went up there twice, once on Resurrection Sunday night, when Jesus appeared to all of them when they were locked in the room, hiding from the Jews, all but doubting Thomas, and Judas, of course, who was killed, committed suicide. And then the next Sunday night, the next week, the next Sunday, what is that, eight days later, they met again on that night where Thomas was there, and then Jesus convinced Thomas that he was the risen Jesus when he said, put your hands on my side, and so forth. And then they all headed out for Galilee. Now, maybe Jesus wanted to, maybe they didn't want to head out for Galilee yet because they didn't really quite believe it was Jesus. And maybe Jesus had to show up at those rooms to convince them, say, look, I'm alive, head on out to Galilee. Maybe the disciples were slow in leaving for Galilee. I don't know why they didn't go straight up there, but Jesus saw them before they went. Matthew 28, verse 11. As they were on their way to Galilee, some of the guards 
excuse me, that's not, that's not true. As they, the women, were on their way to see the apostles, that's, that would be on Sunday, Sunday afternoon, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. Now remember, those guards were under the control of the chief priest because Pontius Pilate had turned them over to the chief priest. The guards were responsible for watching the tomb to see that nobody stole the body. They see an angel there, they freak out, they leave, and they come back and tell the chief priest, they said, somebody rolled that stone back, and we saw angels, and so forth. Now only Matthew tells us of the posting of the guards, and only Matthew tells us of the report back to the chief priest. Now, it's ironic that those who were posted to prevent claims of resurrection are now one of the first witnesses because they come back and say, we saw the empty tomb, which, of course, implies that we saw him resurrected. Now, the Jews had incontrovertible proof that Jesus had risen, and they still tried to cover it up. These people were so full of evil, garbage, filth, that they're still trying to deny that Jesus rose again from the dead. Now, some people say that after the women and the angels had left, that the well, while the women and the angels angels were there, the soldiers were just looking at the tomb, seeing what's going on, scared to go anywhere. And then they, uh, when the women left, they went in and looked at the empty tomb themselves. I don't know if that's true because, as soon as the soldiers saw the angels sitting on the rock and saw the earthquake and heard the earthquake and saw the stone rolled away, I'm sure they were so scared they didn't want to have anything to do with that tomb. And they headed out to report to the chief priest. They couldn't have stayed around to worry about those women. What had happened is before dawn, before the sun had come up, before the women got there, the angels came, there was an earthquake, and the tomb was open, and the stone was rolled away. They saw all that, and I'm convinced that they just headed out to the chief priest, scared out of their minds, and when the women came, the soldiers weren't there to stop them, because the soldiers were gone, scared. And then the women went in, of course, they didn't see the angels until they went inside, and then they saw Jesus after they left. The opinion that the the that the soldiers checked for the body after the angels of the women had left was opinion of John Gill, and I don't I think he's wrong on that. Now, why did the soldiers hasten back to report to the chief priest? Well, they wanted to clear themselves of accusations of bribery because that would be very easy. Oh, you got bribed, and so somebody came and stole the body, and they paid you off. And they said, nope, because that would be the death penalty if they were accused of that. Also, they wanted to clear themselves from accusations of negligence, because if they negligently let somebody steal the body, they would also be punished, probably killed, especially if they were falling asleep on watch, because that's the standard punishment for a Roman soldier who falls asleep on watch. They died. They were executed. And falling asleep was what people would naturally assume when it was discovered that the tomb was open and empty. People would say, well, you soldiers must have fallen apart. The soldiers didn't want to get caught for that. So they ran back to the chief priest and said, no, we weren't asleep. We saw an angel come and open up the tomb. Now, the soldiers' defense against falling asleep is another apologetic point. The Jews, as we'll see later, they made up this story that the soldiers had fallen asleep, and they bribed the soldiers to accept that story. But the soldiers, they didn't, they weren't going to, they didn't come back and tell the chief priest that they had fallen asleep. That would be stupid on their point because that'd be like putting a death sentence on them. The only reason they did finally confess to falling asleep is because the chief priest said, we'll, we'll clear it with you with Pontius Pilate. We'll take care of you, probably with a bribe. And the soldiers really had no choice but to accept that bribe because they were in such a bad spot. They were in a position where they could easily be accused of negligence, falling asleep. And if they had not taken the bribe, somebody would have accused them of that. There would have been investigations and they'd be they'd be dead meat. They'd be executed. But by admitting that they had fallen asleep with Pilate's, with the chief priest's assurance that Pilate would be 
taken care of, i.e. bribed, then they had a chance of living. And so they did the only thing they could do, which was to take that bribe. And they also went back to the chief priest probably for instructions on what to do next. This is a remarkable circumstance. Now, what are we going to do now that the stone has been rolled away? Now, in my opinion, if the soldiers had been smart, they would have secretly rolled the stone back in front of the tomb. No one would have known that Jesus' body wasn't inside. The soldiers would have been in no trouble at all because nobody would know that the body was gone. The women would go around telling people that the grave was empty. Then the apostles would have come back and looked at the grave, and they would say, eh, well, you know, there's still a stone in front of it. Somebody might have eventually looked in the grave and opened the stone to really check the woman's story out, but if they did, all the Jews would say, well, the guard's been gone. You know, they were only there for a couple nights. They're gone. Somebody's come in the meanwhile and stolen the body. After the guard had stood down, they stole the body. But I suspect that it, the soldiers were so rattled under the unusual circumstances, they didn't think that far ahead. But that would have gotten them out of trouble, and it would have messed up the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus pretty good, too. So what happened was just perfect to prove that Jesus rose again from the dead. And everything that Jesus said is true, including heaven and hell, the kingdom of God. Now, in this verse, it says that some of the guards came into the city. Some people infer from that that the other guards probably stayed at the tomb. John Gill and Adam Clark say that. I don't believe that. If they stayed at the tomb, they would have seen all, they would have seen the women come, the women go. They would have seen Mary Magdalene come, Mary Magdalene go. They would have seen Peter and John come, Peter and John go. I can't believe that they wouldn't have tried to stop some of that coming and going if they were still at the tomb. So I don't know why Gill and Clark say they were probably at the tomb. Maybe there's something I don't see here, but I don't think so. Matthew 28, verses 12 through 13. After the priests had assembled with the elders, this is on Sunday afternoon. After the priests had assembled with the elders, the priests of the religious leaders, the elders of the Sanhedrin political leaders, the religious and political big shots got together and agreed on a plan. That's a plan to cover up the the resurrection of Jesus. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. As I've just said, the soldiers had no choice but to take that bribe because they knew that, as we'll see in a later verse, they knew that the Jews were going to try to bribe Pilate and keep them from getting the Roman punishment for falling asleep, which they, of course, are falsely confessing to. This was an official meeting of the Sanhedrin, when they assembled, probably, according to John Gill. Now, this nice little story that the Jews concocted is so full of holes it looks like Swiss cheese. Here's some of the problems. First, it would be hard for anyone to, to believe that a Roman soldier would confess to sleeping on duty. Not only is it shameful, it was punishable by death. Why would somebody confess to that? Oh, yeah, unless, the, unless Pilate was bribed. But then they would have to admit that there was some connection between the Romans and the chief priests that had agreed to the bribery, and that doesn't look good either. Secondly, if the soldiers were asleep, how could they know the disciples stole the body? We were sleeping and the disciples stole the body. Well, how do you know the disciples stole the body while you were sleeping? Can you see things while you're sleeping? Here's another point number three, problems with the story. Is it likely that all the soldiers of the guard would all fall asleep at once? Oh, we're trained Roman soldiers, trained to stay up all night and all of a sudden... All four of them zonked out all at once. Yeah, really? Is it likely a Roman soldier would even fall asleep knowing that death was the punishment? Confessing to falling asleep is unlikely, and f actually falling asleep is unlikely, because Roman soldiers wouldn't fall asleep knowing that they would die if they got caught. Would it not be likely, fifth point, problem with the story, would it not be likely that Jews would tell that the Jews would tell the soldiers to be especially on the alert because of the prediction that Jesus had many made many times he did rise on the third day 
All right, you soldiers, especially be on the alert, and all four of them fall asleep at once. Come on. This is nonsense. This is a great apologetic tool to witness to people who say, ah, oh, no, the disciples stole the body. Not to mention the fact that if they stole the body and went out preaching the gospel, they are going out preaching what they knew to be alive when they just were then scared to death, scattered all over Jerusalem, sh hiding out in the house, shaking and trembling with the doors locked. Oh, all of a sudden we're going to go out and steal the body and go out and risk our lives and get boiled in oil and hung upside down and crucified so we can tell the world about a fake Jesus that we knew. And start a religion that's got over a billion people in it 2,000 years later. Are you are you serious? Really? Jesus was either Lord, uh, he was a liar, or he was a lunatic. And these disciples are not going to be out spreading a false story about a liar and a lunatic because he was Lord. He rose again from the dead, folks. Deal with it. We need to deal with this. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now these Sanhedrin people, the priests and the elders, they were agreeing on a plan to cover up the resurrection of Jesus. These people were so evil, they were still plotting against Jesus after they had killed him. They had incontrovertible proof that he had risen from the dead, and they still didn't care they were going to cover it up. By the way, not only was it absurd to say that the, the soldiers were sleeping, the other part of the story was that the disciples stole the body. Now, why is this absurd? Well, there were only 11 disciples that were left. They had all but one of them had abandoned Jesus. No one in Jerusalem had seen them near the cross except for John. They would have, they, those 11 disciples would have had to outfox the majestic power of the Sanhedrin and the power of the Roman army. They would have to open the tomb and not wake up the sleeping soldiers. And they would have had to have done all this without anyone, not to mention the soldiers, but anyone else seeing them steal the body. Are you kidding me, skeptics? Are you really serious? You who claim to be so rational and so smart and so intelligent, do you really believe that? Matthew 28, 14. The Jews are still talking to the, to the soldiers who were, had come back from guarding the tomb. If this reaches the governor's ears, that's Pilate, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. And, of course, dealing with him, I'm sure everybody understood, was bribing him. And Pontius Pilate would probably have taken a bribe. These Roman officials were corrupt as they are in China. And of course, keeping them out of trouble, what kind of trouble? Falling asleep and letting the body get away. That's capital crime. And as I said earlier, the guards really had no choice but to accept the bribe. If they didn't and just let the facts stand as they may, the whole world would have, the word would have gotten out that they had let the body escape. They had not done their job. And why? Because they had fallen asleep on the job, most probably. Therefore, the, their commanding officers would have executed them. And if they didn't accept that bribe, with the tomb being empty, Jesus would be proclaimed as Messiah. And that means there would be a messianic movement going on amidst the Jews, which means civil turmoil, and that would hurt the security of the Roman government. And that's what the soldiers are supposed to be responsible for, is maintaining the security of the Roman government. They had no choice. They had to take that bribe, because at least when they took the bribe, they had a chance that Pilate would bribe, excuse me, that uh, the Jewish uh, officials who, had, who were hiring, who had, were in charge of them, that those Jewish officials would bribe Pontius Pilate and keep them out of trouble. So they had to take that bribe. Now, here's a question. I wonder if the Jews had the power to keep the soldiers out of trouble. Well, they could have given a bribe, and that would have got them out. That the soldiers accepted the bribe doesn't prove that the Jewish officials actually had the power to keep them out of trouble. As I said, they, had, they were between the rock and the hard place. They had no choice but to accept the bribe and hope it worked out that the Jewish officials did have the power to keep them out of trouble. But I imagine that back then, they, people understood corruption pretty good. They probably thought, yeah, I think these Jews will get us out of trouble. 
We better take the bribe. Matthew twenty-eight fifteen. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been spread among Jewish people to this day. Some people have speculated on the motives of these soldiers for taking the bribe. Financial greed, John Gill says. No, I don't think so. I think they were trying to save their necks, save their lives. They had no choice but to take the bribe. If they didn't take the bribe, the story would have spread that the body was stolen and they would have gotten nailed. So they had to take the bribe so the Jewish leaders would bribe Pontius Pilate and maybe get them off. So fear was what motivated them to take the money. The story was been spread among Jewish people to this day. That is the day that Matthew has written the gospel, which was in the 60s sometime. Justin Martyr, in Dialogue with Truffaut the Jew, has an interesting story he wrote about mid-2nd century A.D., He says the Jews sent special messengers to every country to tell all the Jews in every country. The soldiers fell asleep and the disciples stole the body. And so any Jew that believed that believed a story that had as many holes in it as Swiss cheese does. They, they believed it because they wanted to believe it, not because they examined the facts. Matthew 28:16. the 11 disciples, all but Judas, traveled to Galilee. This is after doubting Thomas had been converted that uh, second Sunday after resurrection, the first Sunday after resurrection Sunday. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When had he directed them? That was in Matthew 26:32. Before his crucifixion, Jesus told the disciples, but after I have been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Now, in that passage, it doesn't say where in Galilee, but in Matthew 28:16, it says the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. So it was not only to Galilee, but to a particular mountain they were supposed to go to, and they went. Galilee would not have tied it down enough where they would ever meet each other. Why did Jesus want them to go to Galilee after his resurrection? Well, because Galilee would be a place safe from the officials in Jerusalem, because it would be far away from them. The disciples could get go back to fishing and support themselves while they waited for Pentecost, and Jesus could go up there in private and teach them. Most of them were from Galilee anyway, so that made sense to go back there, back to their home. So that, that made perfectly good sense. Nobody knows where that mountain is, by the way. I'm sure a tour guide somewhere does, but nobody else does. Why did he, Jesus choose a mountain for the rendezvous point? Well, a mountain is a safe and solitary place. And by the way, it wasn't only the disciples that met there. 1 Corinthians 15, 6, over 500 believers were there. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Now, James and Fawcett and Brown say this, quote, Nothing can account for such a number as 500 assembling at one spot, but the expectation of some promised manifestation of their risen Lord. And the promise before his resurrection, twice repeated after it, best explains this immense gathering. The promise before was Matthew 26, meet me in Galilee. The angels told the women, tell the apostles to meet Jesus in Galilee. And then Jesus tells the women, tell the apostles to meet me in Galilee. Three times they're supposed to meet in Galilee. Now, I will say this, 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. But I don't, and people assume this is in Galilee, perhaps, I don't think it, says exactly where the 500 people were that Jesus met. I think this is an assumption that it was in Galilee. It's a reasonable assumption, I think. Matthew 28:17. when they saw him, who they, probably the 500, because when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Well, there are no doubters amongst the apostles yet, because Doubting Thomas has already gotten relieved of his doubt before they headed up to Galilee. That happened in Jerusalem eight days after the resurrection on the second, on the first Sunday after Easter Sunday. Thomas believed and so it's some people doubted him as probably some of the 500. Now, doubting Jesus after the resurrection is not only some of the 500 that doubted, doubted, doubted Jesus. You remember 
The two disciples on the road to Emmaus had a hard time believing until their eyes were open. You remember that? That was on Sunday afternoon, Resurrection Sunday afternoon. And then when the women first came to the disciples and to the apostles and said, Jesus is ridden, this is how they responded, Luke 24, 11. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. So there you have some more unbeliefs. You got Thomas. At first you got the disciples didn't believe. John believed pretty quick when he saw the empty tomb and the grave clothes. He went inside the tomb. So lots of doubt, but Jesus convinces them. I believe that's why he cooked fish and ate food, made a fire up there on the edge of the Sea of Galilee in his post-resurrection appearance after he left Jerusalem was to prove, hey, I'm not a ghost. I rose again from the dead. This is me. I'm in the flesh. I have a glorified body now. Matthew 28:18. Then Jesus came near and said to them, this is to the 500 and the apostles, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, again, I say 500. Some people say Noah's 11 disciples only. I tend to think it's all the 500. He was king now. He was resurrected. So now he has authority. All authority has been given to me. Why? I rose again from the dead. I conquered Satan. Nailed up the decrees hostile to mankind. Nailed them on the cross and put to shame all the demons that were trying to keep me in the grave. I busted their rear ends. I've conquered them, and I'm king now, and all authorities have given, been given to me on heaven and earth. And now I want to commission my disciples to spread the gospel. Matthew 28:19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is the Great Commission, famous scripture that's quoted so many times, but I bet you didn't know where it was quoted. It was on that mountain in Galilee after Jesus had risen again, uh, risen again from the dead. Now, when it says make disciples of all nations, that does not argue for a Christian nation. It doesn't mean go out and make all nations Christian. It says make disciples of all nations. You cannot make a, a nation a disciple. You cannot baptize a nation. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Well, it sounds like you're baptizing the nation. Well, no, you're not baptizing the nation. You're baptizing people in the nation. As a matter of fact, you can look at the Greek. Altus is masculine, baptizing them, meaning the people, nations, all the nations, pantata ethne, is neuter, different gender for nations and them. So it's not that you're baptizing the nations, you're baptizing the people in the nation. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there's your Trinitarian formula. Some, some baptismal formulas don't have all three persons. That doesn't mean a thing. This one does, so why not use them all? Here's a quote from John Gill about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is it possible for words to convey a plainer sense than these do? And do they not direct every reader to consider the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as three distinct persons? Well, of course they are. Now, notice that what is emphasized here in this, this commissioning word that Jesus gives to his followers. Water baptism is there. And by the way, that's water baptism. Jesus baptizes in the Holy Spirit, but people baptize in water. So we know this is water baptism. So baptizing is important, and making disciples is important. That's what we're supposed to be doing as Christians. There's no joy greater than that. I spend time on long-distance phone to China from South Carolina. I've just did it, done it this morning, training a young Christian girl about 26 years old that I led to the Lord about a month ago, and I'm teaching her, and I'm teaching her, and I'm teaching her. She hadn't been baptized yet. Hard to baptize somebody on the other side of the world, but I'm looking for somebody to do it trying to make her a disciple, and it is the greatest joy to do that. We all should be doing that. If it's just one person, or if it's 10, or if it's 12, or however many it is, do, do what we can to let people know about the kingdom of God and Jesus the King. By the way, this verse says, make disciples, and I think it's Mark, says, teach all nations. I can't pull up the scripture right 
I'll find it here. Preach the gospel, I'm sorry. Mark 16, 15 says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. So Mark emphasizes preaching, evangelism. Matthew emphasizes teaching and baptizing and making disciples. Teaching, and Matthew is mentioned in the next verse. I hadn't gotten there yet, but he, he mentions teaching too. All right, let me say that again. Matthew says, Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in verse 20, teaching them. And then Mark says, Go out and preach the gospel to all nations. All goes together. We shouldn't put one above the other. Now we see Jesus' ministry has now expanded from Israel to the whole world. Remember when he first sent out the 12 disciples in, from Capernaum in Matthew 10? Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them, sent out these 12 after giving them instructions. Don't take the road leading to other nations and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the, lo to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was just to Israel to get started, but now they're to go to the whole world. All nations. That must have been a huge change in their mindset. At least it should have been. Church took a little while before they got going to all nations, as we know from early church history in the book of Acts, but they eventually did. They went to all nations, and that's why I'm here in South Carolina, is because they went to all nations. Let's go to Matthew 28, 20. Jesus continues to his disciples, teaching them, teaching the nations, to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you. That's appropriate. Jesus is Emmanuel. That's what Emmanuel means. God is with us. That famous phrase from Isaiah 9, Emmanuel. He was referring to the fact that he would be with them spiritually, of course, not physically. He's about to leave them physically. And so he's trying to reassure them, even though I'm getting ready to leave, getting ready to ascend 40 days after my uh, resurrection. I'm getting ready to ascend, but remember, I am with you always, even though I'm gone, because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Of course, that teaching was later, but but at any rate, that's what he, he's trying to say. Look, don't worry, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. Now, Gill and Clark say the end of the age means the end of the world. As we know from reading Matthew, studying Matthew 24, age usually means the end of the Jewish age. The Messianic age begins after the Jewish age, and I think that's what Jesus meant. He had just given the disciples, the Olivet Discourse a couple of weeks ago, and there he was talking about the end of the Jewish age, and I suspect he's still talking about the end of the Jewish age. I'm with you even to the end of that age, and the reason he does that is because he knows that these Jews are going to be persecuting this little band of believers, and he says, I don't, you keep going, keep going, I'm going to be with you all the way until those people are ended, until those Jewish persecutors are ended. I think that makes perfectly good sense, although I know that nobody likes to take it that way, including Gill and Clark, but I will say this, just because that's what he meant there doesn't mean he's not also with us to the end of the world. Of course he is. I'm not, gain, I'm not denying that at all. Just to show that I'm fair here, I'm going to give you Adam Clark's reasoning to say that the end of the age meant to the end of the planet's existence. Quote, but though the words are used in this sense in several places in the sense of the end of the Jewish age, yet it is certain they were repeatedly used among the primitive ecclesiastical writers to denote the consummation of all things. And it is likely that this is the sense in which they are used here, which the Anglo-Saxon has happily expressed. And I be with you all days until world ending. And this is indispensably necessary because the presence and influence of Jesus Christ are essentially requisite in every age of the world. Well, I agree with that, but I still don't think that's what Jesus was talking about. To enlighten, instruct, and save the lost. But I don't believe that's what he was talking about. This promise takes in not only the primitive apostles, but also all their successors in the Christian ministry as long as the earth shall endure. Well, okay, maybe so. I don't think so. Now, in this great commission, 
Mark has a whole bunch of other stuff left about as you go out, you'll drive out demons speaking tongues, pick up snakes and all. That, there's a textual problem there, a famous textual problem. We'll talk about that when we get to Mark. And I think that I am finished. I am finished with Matthew chapter 28. I'm finished with the book of Matthew. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm taking up Mark chapter 1 in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.